Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Bitzel, as always. And Lucas, we are getting to see some more deja vu here, not only for the American League pennant winner in consecutive years again, but we are seeing the return of another pennant winner that has become very familiar. In fact, we are seeing the exact same teams from 1930 and 1931. I mean, not quite to the level of needing to open with the Groundhog Day theme like we did in the episodes about a decade ago when you had the Giants and Yankees going at each other. And I think that was three straight years, so this one only two. But you've got a dynasty that's been built in the back-to-back champion Philadelphia Athletics going for a three-peat, which, if I remember right, I think that would be the first of its kind so far through the history of this podcast. The Philadelphia A's from almost 20 years ago came close, but did not quite finish the job. So they will try again with this group. And they were the heavy favorites. I mean, they won 107 games at the time. That was the second most in American League history. They finished... 13 and a half games in front, New York and Washington were the only two teams within 30 games of the A's, and it was an obvious choice from the get-go. After all, you had Al Simmons leading the American League and hitting with a 390 average, 128 RBIs, fourth in that category. Jimmy Fox, age 23, and we've talked about him a lot, so he's already accomplished a lot in his young career, hit 291 and had 30 home runs, which was fourth in the American League. However, the A's had a real juggernaut at pitching, if you want to even call it a juggernaut. George Rube Wahlberg had 20 wins. You had George Earnshaw, whom we've talked about before, winning 21, the lowest ERA in the American League at 3.47. But Lefty Grove won 31 games out of 35 decisions. And that was a nine-win difference in the leaders in that category. He had 175 strikeouts, 27 complete games, four shutouts, a 2.06 ERA, which was more than half a run than Lefty Gomez of the Yankees. And of notes, this is the first year that separate American League and National League MVPs are being awarded. And it is obvious that Lefty Grove would win this award, and he did. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely running away with it. And in a year, we talked in last week's episode about how it was kind of a down year for pitching and we were out of the dead ball era. And you had mentioned that there were some changes that were made coming into 1931. And you can see, obviously, the A's as a staff posted a 347 ERA. We mentioned it was a 206 mark for Lefty Grove. George Ernstshaw at 367, uh, 374 for Rube Wahlberg. So this staff is absolutely stacked in 1931. And again, Grove is the anchor of that staff. You know, his ERA was less than half of the league average. Some historians call it the greatest pitching season in the history of baseball. He won 16 straight games, which ties the record shared by Walter Johnson and Smokey Joe Wood. The Aces a team had winning streaks of 13 and 17 games. So again, how could you pick against the Athletics heading into this World Series? Well, I mean, really the only thing I could think of that would be capable of beating a team this good on paper is, oh, let's call it Cardinal Devil Magic. 
All right, let's move over to the National League. The St. Louis Cardinals with a 101-53 record. Frankie Frisch, the National League MVP. So we're getting both MVPs facing off in the first year of separate MVPs in the American and National League. Frankie Frisch, the second baseman, he scored 96 runs, and he led the league with 28 stolen bases. Chick Hafey is back. He won the batting title by a very small march over Bill Terry, 3-4-8-9 to 3-4-8-6. Also led the Cardinals with 16 home runs, but the player that was really exciting people in Cardinal Nation was a 27-year-old rookie named Pepper Martin hitting 300. He was out of Oklahoma. John Laird Martin is his given name, and he was a speedster in center field. So despite the apparent utter dominance of the A's, the Cardinals were no slouches either. Oh, absolutely not. We go back uh, just kind of looking at their rotation. You've got uh, 19 win season out of Bill Hallahan with a 329 ERA. Burley Grimes... 17 and 9 with a 365. Uh, 159 strikeouts, by the way, for Hallahan. Uh, Paul Derringer, 134 strikeouts, went 18 and 8 with a 336. Uh, team ERA for the Cardinals on the season of 345. So, like I said, no slouches there either. But I do want to come back and talk a little bit about um, one Pepper Martin because we foreshadowed him at the end of our 1930 episode. And you mentioned that he is a rookie. So Martin had a couple of cups of coffee in the major leagues with the Cardinals. He made his debut in 1928, played in 39 games, went 4 for 13, so finished with a a 308 batting average, did not appear in the majors in 1929. In 1930, appeared in six games, but only had one plate appearance, went 0 for 1. And then all of a sudden, here he is in 1931 plays in 123 games you mentioned the 300 batting average 30 walks to 40 strikeouts a 351 on base so you know 75 runs knocked in and obviously you know you mentioned cardinals fans were excited and it's entirely justified here i should mention a few more tidbits hafey is the first batting crown winner to wear glasses so very interesting trivia in case that ever comes up in bar trivia. I won a Chicago sports trivia with a couple of friends the other night, so I'm kind of on a high of that. Grove also, he was the last Southpaw to win 30 games in a season as 886 win percentage is the best in history by a 30 game winner. Take that for what you will. And it's very interesting that Grove won this many games in the season when no National League pitcher won 20 games. The first time that ever happened in the NL or the AL. So, I mean, you talk about the season of Grove, this is it. Oh, yeah, 100% looking at it. Because, yeah, you know, we, we mentioned those Cardinals pitchers. They had three guys in, in the upper teens in uh, Derringer, Grimes, and Hallahan combined for 54 wins. And then you had three other pitchers with double-digit wins on the season for the Cardinals. One other interesting tidbit, and this was, uh, it was a tidbit that, didn't make the cut in our 1930 episode but here in this 1931 for the first time in major league history we have a team with uniform numbers on the backs of the jerseys appearing in this one the philadelphia athletics in 1931 had numbers on their jerseys so for the first time in the history of this podcast we have uniform numbers excellent 
And also, unlike last year when the A's had home field advantage, it was the Cardinals' turn to have home field advantage. But it did not matter in Game 1 because naturally the A's went to Lefty Grove and he had a blister on his finger, but that didn't matter because he won 6-2 over Paul Derringer, who was the other star rookie for the Cardinals. The Cardinals were only able to muster as a bright spot a uh, stolen base from Martin and three hits by Martin off of Grove, including an RBI double. So it's becoming very obvious to baseball fans, at least at the outset, that this might not be the Cardinals here once again. And it was also evidenced by the fact that Simmons hit a home run in this game. Well, especially when you consider the Cardinals actually got off to a good start. Paul Derringer goes one, two, three in the top of the first, strikes out Max Bishop and Mule Haas to open the game before getting Mickey Cochran to ground out. And then you mentioned the Cardinals manufacturing runs. Uh, Jim Bottomley with an RBI single opens the scoring, and then the Pepper Martin RBI double makes it 2-0, and then it's just all downhill from there. The Athletics are able to put together a four-run inning. You have a RBI double by Mule Haas. Al Simmons draws a bases-loaded walk, and then a two-run single by Double X ends up giving the Athletics the lead. They add some insurance with that Al Simmons home run in the top of the seventh, and that accounts for all of your scoring in the 6-2 Philadelphia victory. We go to game two. The Cardinals are pitching Bill Hallahan, who has a reputation for being wild. In fact, he's known as Wild Bill Hallahan. We kind of mentioned that in the last episode. But he ended up winning this game despite walking seven ace hitters. He allowed only three hits. He beats George Earnshaw by a score of two to nothing. He gets support from Martin. He manufactured the game's only two runs almost single-handedly. In the second inning, he doubles, steals third, scores on a sack fly, and then in the seventh, he singles, steals second, goes to third on an infield hit, and scores on a squeeze bunt by Charlie Gelbert. So... Surprisingly, the Cardinals have tied the series at 1-1 heading into Philly. You've got the pitchers as the story, and you mentioned the seven walks by Bill Hallahan. He did strike out eight guys, so it's you're getting the, I don't want to call this like a three true outcomes thing because he didn't give up any home runs in this one, but it's it's a lot of the ball not getting put in play here. And, you know, Hallahan getting the uh, complete game three-hit shutout. A 82-game score, for those of you interested in that. And uh, Earnshaw, not a bad outing by any stretch, just allowing the couple runs on six hits over eight. But, you know, when your opponent throws a three-hit shutout, what can you do? Also of note, it's nice that you mentioned the three true outcomes, Lucas, because we're recording this right after baseball announced rules for the next year with the pitch clock and the bang of the shifts. And perhaps most ridiculous of all, the number of pickoff attempts. But that's a story for another day and another podcast. Yep, we'll save the ire for another time. So we go to Game 3 in Philadelphia. Burley Grimes, one of the few spitballers still left in baseball at this time. You might recall he lost a pair of games in 1930. He flirted with a no-hitter. And he made it through seven inks without allowing a hit by the A's. And then at the top of the eighth, the Cardinals were well in front. Even the Philadelphia crowd began cheering for Grimes to complete the no-hitter. But Fox walked leading off the eighth. Then Bing Miller cracked a single to center. Grimes lost the no-hit bid, but he won the game. Pitched a two-hitter and beats Lefty Grove by a score of 5-2. to two. Grimes actually helped his own cause with two hits and two RBIs. Go ahead, say your line, Lucas. 
hitting pitchers forever. Martin doubles off the top of the right field scoreboard, missed a home run by inches. So the Cardinals win this one by a score of five to two. So they steal a game at Scheib Park, a two games to one lead, 12 hits to the A's two. So this was a perfect combination of hitting and pitching that did the job for the Cardinals here. Yeah, dominant performance. The only blemish for Burley Grimes, you know, you mentioned the uh, hit by Bing Miller in the eighth. The two runs coming on an Al Simmons two-run shot with two outs in the bottom of the ninth to spoil the shutout as well. Home runs and garbage time. Gotta love them. So game four, the next day, the A's come back. Earnshaw's on the mound once again. Earnshaw is, by the way, from New York City. He throws his own two-hitter. Shuts out the Cardinals 3-0. Jimmy Fox supports him with one of the longest home runs in the history of Scheib Park. And as for the Cardinals, Martin collects both Cardinals hits and steals a base. So the series is tied at 2-2. Two to two, And we've gotten some nice pitching performances. But I'm sure a few people by now have noticed the impacts that Martin is having in this series as it goes to a best-of-three series. Yeah, his name keeps coming up. And we haven't touched on his full numbers for the series yet. We'll do that at the conclusion. But it really, truly, that foreshadowing that we mentioned at the end of the 1930 episode is definitely rearing its head through four games. Before we move on to game five, I just want to take a moment here and point out, we haven't done this for quite some time. I want to talk about the cover of the program for this year's World Series. I don't know if you've seen this, Lucas, but, you know, it's 25 cents, by the way, in 1931. It says World Championship with a baseball in the background and you've got a cardinal and elephant staring up at each other so even though the a's don't technically have an elephant in their logo now they did have it as their primary logo at this point in history and i think it was obvious for whoever designed this that hey you've got two animals being represented here in this world series we gotta make this work that's a brilliant job of marketing the uh, Philadelphia Athletics at the time. Their logo was a uh, blue outlined elephant. A little bit of kind of an angry look. Hard to tell with the detail and the level that I can see on uh, baseball reference at the moment. The Cardinals are sporting the familiar birds on the bat logo. Obviously, you know, a different iteration than what we see now. But the theme has kind of stuck through the years. And, of course, the other irony is when you look at the representatives today, it's the bird that looks more intimidating than the elephant. Yeah, right? Crazy. And I think that's also reflective of how both franchises are doing at the time we're recording this episode. Yeah, that's fair. So let's get to Game 5 still in Philadelphia. Hallahan is back out there for the Cardinals. Wins again, 5-1. to one. Martin comes up once again. He has three hits, four RBIs. He drives in four of the Cardinals' five runs. He caps that with a long home run to left field that actually gave him a standing ovation from the A's faithful. There was just an awe at him. So it's just one of those things where you're like, who the heck is this kid and why is he making such an impact? Okay, also, time out. You're talking about uh, high praise coming from Philadelphia fans here too. Well, crap, there goes all of our Philadelphia listening base. My bad. <laughs> well, it's a good 30-plus years before they throw snowballs at Santa Claus, so they still have some time to uh, grow bitter here, you know? 
Yeah, this is true. So you mentioned the damage that Pepper Martin inflicted in this one. So Cardinals get going right away, top of the first. And an interesting situation here as you had Sparky Adams started this game for the St. Louis Cardinals. He batted leadoff and was listed as the starter at third base. He singled into left field to open the game and then was immediately pinch run for by Andy High. And High would remain in the game and play third for the rest of the outing. High would come around to score on a Pepper Martin sacrifice fly. So the Cardinals open the scoring. That one nothing lead holds until the top of the sixth when Pepper Martin comes through and launches a two-run home run to left, makes it 3 nothing. You have Big Miller driving in a run with a ground out for the A's in the bottom of the seventh. Pepper Martin right back to work in the top of the eighth, gets that run back with an RBI single with two outs and just Man alive, this Pepper Martin kid. And because of him, the Cardinals have a 3-2 series lead going back to St. Louis. Manager Gabby Street has recognized Martin's greatness by this point because he began the series bang sixth, but by this point he was moved up to the cleanup spot. And Lefty Grove was tasked with keeping the A's season alive, and he does just that. He actually holds Martin hitsless in Game 6, only giving up five hits. The A's win by a score of 8-1, to one, so we are going to a Game 7. I find it interesting here, too, that Martin was, you mentioned he started 6th, he's up to batting 4th, goes 0-3 for 3 in game six and the A's getting a couple of uh, crooked numbers up on the board they put four runs apiece in the fifth and the seventh the um, big issue here in the top of the fifth all four of those runs unearned because of Jimmy Fox reaching on an error by third baseman Jake Flowers drink somehow I thought that we were going to avoid the drink reference nope because we don't see a lot of errors committed by teams overall in this but i guess it was inevitable that an individual error would be big we mentioned very early on just seeing a ton of error numbers popping up and so that kind of inspired the drinking game and at this point it's just kind of the the running joke every episode and you know it was one of those i had to sneak it in somewhere I never thought we'd have running gags when we started this podcast, but we're almost 30 episodes in, so I guess it was inevitable that it would come up. Indeed. So let's go to Game 7. We have a couple of veterans on the mound. You've got Grimes for St. Louis and Earnshaw for Philadelphia. Each had already pitched a two-hitter in the series, so people naturally were expecting a pitcher's duel. But to the disappointment of the A's, Game 7 was one-sided. The A's actually self-destructed in the very first inning. The Cardinals got two runs on error by Fox and a wild pitch by Earnshaw, a pass ball by Mickey Cochran, the catcher, and then two Texas leaguers that some thought the infielders should have caught. And then the Cardinals add two more runs in the third, and that was more than enough for Grimes. And he coasted until he allowed a couple of runs in the ninth. And then with two outs, Hallahan came in and beat the A's once more, preserved Grimes' second victory of the series. Martin caught Max Bishop's bases loaded fly to center for the last out, and the Cardinals fans understandably rushed the field to congratulate Martin and the whole rest of the Cardinals. And he was actually hitless in Game 7, but it did not matter because... 
Again, the Cardinals toppled a team that appeared to be unbeatable going into this series. They were held to a 282 slugging percentage by Cardinals pitching, although Simmons and Fox performed well, you know, those errors notwithstanding from Fox. But just crazy to think that the Cardinals were able to just watch the A's do themselves in at the end. So that wild pitch in the bottom of the first that scored the first run, guess who was at the plate? Pepper Martin. Cardinal Devil Magic. So are you saying that maybe Earnshaw was intimidated by the reputation Martin established for himself throughout the series? I don't think it's necessarily that. I just, I find it kind of poetic that, of course, it's Pepper Martin at the plate when that happens. And it's crazy. You know, we, we mentioned the utter dominance he had in games one through five and then proceeds to go a combined 0 for 6 in games six and seven. So Pepper Martin's final tally for the 19 31 World Series is a paltry 500, 538, 792 slash line. Going further into his numbers, 12 hits, 4 doubles, 5 runs scored, 5 runs driven in, and 5 steals. And Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis realized how good he was in this series because when he was congratulating Martin after the series, he told him, Young man, I'd rather cherry places with you than with any man in the country. To which Martin said, Why, they'll be fine, Judge, if we can trade salaries, too. There you go. What a shot. It'd be interesting to hear that conversation, you know, obviously today, because, you know, now it would be a Rob Manfred, presumably, making that proclamation, never mind the fact that he's in control of billions of dollars in revenue as the commissioner of baseball. But if you had a... World Series MVP in 1931, 100% it's got to be Pepper Martin. And that's no disrespect to guys like Bill Hallahan, who went 2-0, and recorded the save, were such a thing in existence in Game 7, posted an 049 ERA, Burley Grimes with a 204 ERA, a 2-0 record, Paul Derringer getting three appearances starting two games losing two of them a 426 year i mean he didn't have the best outing but that one two punch of grimes and hallahan normally i feel like we would be leaning towards them for co-world series mvps but just the fact that pepper martin's name kept coming up over and over and over again he's got to be the world series mvp this year and lost in all this hoopla about pepper martin and the cardinals upset is that this is it for Connie Mack in the World Series because the A's do not get back to the World Series until they've moved out to the West Coast and 41 years have gone by. So this is not only the end of Connie Mack in the World Series, who's been in the World Series almost since the beginning. I mean, his first World Series was in 1905, back when Christy Mathewson dominated his team with the New York Giants. This is the end of any future Philadelphia ace juggernaut, and it's just too bad that it has to end now, but it's one hell of a run that this team went on in a couple of iterations, and the tall tactician was behind both of these iterations. And you know, much like John McGraw before him, we really have to appreciate everything that Connie Mack did, not just for the A's, but really for the sport of baseball. He was very revolutionary in his own rights. And we mentioned several episodes back that at a time before managers, scouts, whoever, were making out spray charts and 
all these things Ronco Pierce, he was doing that all in his head, and one can only imagine how he would have done in today's era. Probably done something similar adapted to the technology, but Mac and the A's, definitely a franchise not to be forgotten. It's a shame that there are probably very few living people today who have any sort of memory of Mac's A's in Philly. Well, and it's too bad, too, because it's, you know, kind of spoiler as we look ahead. In the years to follow, um, we start to see, like they did after getting swept in 1914 by the Boston Braves, the Philadelphia Athletics start selling guys off, I guess, kind of a um, financial thing. And remember, it's 1931. We're in the middle of the Great Depression here still, so you have that backdrop in all of this. But the A's kind of hang around a little bit. They're going to finish second in the American League the following year, 13 games back, 19 and a half out in 1933. And then the wheels just completely fall off. They do not finish in the top half of the American League again until 1948. And then Connie Mack has two more years left in him before he is done. And before we sign off, just let's go back to Pepper Mar once more. You mentioned the Great Depression, Lucas. At this point, the Depression is in full swing. And I really think that the country, and really baseball historians will agree, that the country needed a hero like Martin as the Depression was raging on. Because, you know, people are out of work. They're struggling to feed their families. And they just need somebody to look to, to... uh say, you know, hey, there's hope for you yet. I mean, Babe Ruth by this time is Babe Ruth, but he was already a god among men and probably not somebody that people would be able to hope to be just because he was so gargantuan and godlike. But uh, Pepper Martin, this was a 27-year-old kid who came out of nowhere from America's heartland to take one of the best teams in baseball and just upend him almost single-handedly, I think maybe that was a metaphor for some people that, you know, maybe somehow, some way, we can upend the establishment, upend, you know, the Wall Street fat cats, all these people who aren't losing money, and maybe, just maybe, we can come out on top in the end. And Pepper Martin would go on to actually have a pretty good major league career, spend his entire career with the St. Louis Cardinals, Finished his career with a 298 batting average, stole 146 bases, hit 59 home runs. Four-time All-Star, finished uh, top 10 in MVP voting twice. One of those, a top five finish in 1933, so a pretty good career. And yeah, in an era that's pretty dark on the whole, definitely a bright spot for fans of baseball, especially if you're a fan of baseball in St. Louis in 1931. So let's look at our next episode, 1932. We mentioned Babe Ruth. He will be back as his Yankees take on your Chicago Cubs. And he will do something that series that is still debated to this day as to its authenticity. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I do have, without giving anything away, a perspective that maybe you're not familiar with, Lucas, but this is where going to grad school for sports journalism pays off. So you want to hear that, don't you? Oh, 100% I do. I will have to break out my bobblehead then for next week's episode so we've got a little bit of a teaser there and if you want to know just what the heck we're talking about you better tune in next week to find out 
That's right. So for Lucas Smitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1931 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us too. We'll see you next time. <laughs>